When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. episode of the bird chat podcast is presented by onyx hunt final rise and upland gun company on this episode of the show we kick off our annual interview on all things grouse and woodcock with ann jandernaw thanks for tuning in to episode number 239 Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Hopefully many of you are familiar with our guest today, and if you're just tuning in this year, you're in for a treat. This is our annual conversation with Ann Jandernaw, founder of the Scout and Hunt Mapping Application, breeder and trainer of English Setters, Grouse and Woodcock Hunting Guide, and one of our favorite guests when it comes to grouse and woodcock hunting. I know a lot of you are looking forward to this conversation. I heard from many of you. Thanks to everyone that submitted questions. Ann and I had a lot of fun this year. We went long intentionally. So this is going to be a two-part episode this week and next week. And I know you're going to enjoy both segments of this conversation. Before we get to that, I just want to thank Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. Those of you out there making voluntary contributions in support of the show. Anybody interested in contributing above and beyond what you already do by listening can learn more and sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Patrons get some bonus content. They're eligible for Patreon giveaways, and we get everybody some Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers. Check that out if you're interested. Everybody else, if you could leave the Birdshot Podcast a rating, review, subscribe to the show, follow the show, share an episode, tell a friend about it. Little things that are very helpful to the show, and I appreciate you taking the time to do that as well. All right, I'm back from my Western trip, kind of my annual kickoff to the hunting season. Go out there with a group of friends every year. I think this was our sixth year going out, and we had a great time as always. Learned a little bit more each year about prairie country and the birds that live there. It's rough grouse season now, at least in this part of the world. And if it's not yet for you, it will be soon. It's still pretty thick in the woods. It's warm. 
but that's early season for you. The conditions will be improving, and I'm really looking forward to spending some time in the woods this fall. So with that in mind, let's talk some grouse and woodcock with Ann Jandernoff. In part one of the conversation that you'll hear today, Ann and I catch up a little bit and jump into questions. We cover some dog-related questions, and after those dog-related questions, that's where part one will wrap up. We'll come back next week with part two of the conversation with all the rest of the grouse and woodcock hunting and habitat questions on another full episode next week. So stay tuned for that, and let's welcome into the conversation and back to the Bird Chat Podcast once again, Ann Jandernoff. that means i gotta let them out and then i gotta bring them back in and there's literally 10 setters in here so i'm not joking and there's three puppies that can come and go and this is sort of my environment with them so it's quiet now so are you Moment. are you telling me Anne, that you've got you've got 10 english setters uh, uh scattered about you right now yes <laughs> well that is i i can't think of a better scenario to to begin this podcast welcome back to the bird shop podcast Anne. thank you Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to have you on. I I love I love this episode as do many many listeners and I appreciate you taking the time to join us once again our annual conversation on grouse and dogs and all things uh, upland hunting and we're excited today and uh what well, hopefully we're recording this on September 1st so a lot of our friends are are probably out hitting the hitting the hills walking short grass prairie today. But when listeners hear this, it will be ruffed grouse seasons opened in Minnesota, Michigan, and Wisconsin, kind of our annual kickoff. And hopefully it will be a lot less warm than it's going to be on this Labor Day weekend, Ann. Oh, I mean, I cringe. <laughs> <laughs> I hate hot weather. And it's been it's been a warm summer yeah. uh, in a lot of ways. It, you know, the mornings haven't. Typically, it's not been as cool as what we're used to. Uh, it's been right at that borderline constantly yeah. for dog training. So, have you did you already run the dogs this morning, or what's your what's your plan on a day like today? When I will just say here in Duluth, Minnesota, it's supposed to get to eighty five degrees today. I don't know about you, but it's got to be closer, higher. Um, we don't get the lake effect coolness that you guys right. get, <laughs> and that that is really huge. Um, I grew up on Southwest, I'll sort of take a backtrack here, Southwest, uh, corner of Lake, right by the Lake Michigan, the Indiana, Michigan line. Mm. And we would get the coolness off the lake and it would always be 15 degrees, sometimes more difference. And my parents up in the Keweenaw, they get the coolness off the lake. And I'll tell you what, that's huge. Uh, it makes a lot of things possible especially when you're doing dealing with dog training here i don't i'm too far inland so it, it doesn't always cool down um the way you'd like it to but when i got up it was 57 already mm. and that was at six o'clock yeah. so heavy heavy dew but it was just sort of still and muggy and yuck yeah yeah now the lake has an interesting, definitely has an interesting climate effect, and I've known that because mm-hmm. I've lived here my my whole life, and it does uh, it does play into some of my fall hunting a little bit. Um, I wonder, like, if you have any, we'll, we'll kind of jump into a question here, and I will circle back because I've got some other things I want to talk to you about. But I wonder, 
do you think about that as far as, because one thing that happens after a long winter here in the North Country, the lake cools down to its coldest temperature. And then in the spring, when the inland is warming up, we are lagging way behind because of that, that cold, cold lake. Do you think about that as far as like nesting and chick production, like within some sort of radius of the lake? I, you know, I, 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 the only thing I can see in chick production is you may be delayed in some of your insects that they need for sure. when they, uh, you know, because it's cooler. However, you know, like where you're at, there's a lot of drainage that comes off farther inland off and headed toward the lake. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, but then there's areas that are not. I mean, some of the areas are sandy too, so that's going to absorb a lot of that moisture. Yeah. Um, as far as coolest, I don't think it it changes much on when they start their, you know, the drumming season and which then leads right into the mating and all this other stuff and chick production. Um, you know, I guess the thing I would say is that typically by the time you have a coolness effect, you have full foliage when those chicks are born. So the canopy will help hold what warmth you have in it, yeah. uh, in the aspen. Now the tag alder won't be that because the canopy is not consistent enough. Tag alder lets a little more of that cold, you know, seep in. But, uh, you know, those are only two things. I mean, when you think about it, I know it's not exactly in your backyard, but it's pretty close is what Gordon, the research Gordon Gillian did. Mm-hmm. It's basically pretty much in your backyard. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't get any better than that. You know, to have, to know when you look at that book, you know, uh, the rough grouse, that he, or the grouse, grouse of the North Shore was another title right. that was used for it. That that was ground zero, so to speak, of research um, for the most probably current research and a lot that we have on these birds. And most of the other research that was done on these birds was out east with uh, Edminster and Bump, mm-hmm. uh, those people. I mean, there's been other researches done, like down in the Appalachian and PA, but, you know, the, the coffee table books and the books that, you know, that really, you know, are a showpiece that you have in collections – are basically was in your area and out east. So um, it's interesting, but I mean, that's all I can think of as of right now is that uh, when the time comes, the time comes, it's time to drum and it's time to go into mating season. And then the chicks do need the insects, but I don't think we lacked any insects this year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I imagine you could still probably have, maybe have nightmares of the, the mosquito numbers earlier this summer. I don't know what it was like for you, but, and everyone around here would tell you, at least in my little small world here, is that it was the worst we've ever mm. seen. Yeah. It was horrid. Um, I've never seen that th- before. Uh, but, uh, and I don't want to for a long time. Yeah. That was like, I, you know, the only th- correlation I could think of is I wonder if that's what it's like up in the parts of Alaska. <laughs> right. <laughs> up there. <laughs> Yeah, that was that. I mean, is the, I, I think we talked about this on a couple episodes earlier in the summer that we had a, we had a lot of snow last winter, and then it hung on, hung on, hung on, and then it really quick melted off. So I think we had a lot of a lot of standing water in the woods, and and that led to an insanely high population of mosquitoes. Yeah, yeah, I know it was very high. Yeah, I remember it was 
we I, I would say we get a little buffer in that just again it's it's cooler it stays cooler right here in Duluth longer so I re, I recalled at that point talking to my forester friends and people in the woods and uh, a little I pretty much avoided it in my turkey season which was nice so I was lucky in that regard because as it got later into turkey season people were dealing with bad mosquitoes but it I I do recall going to our Wisconsin cabin in mm-hmm. on Memorial Day and there you know it's it's sandy there and we usually you know you you anticipate mosquitoes being bad in that part of the year but only at night you know dawn dusk that kind of thing but that was the worst we had ever seen as you say that it was during the day you there was no escape unless you were down on our on your on our dock like basically out, mm-hmm. out over the water if you were in the yard or anywhere around the cabin the mosquitoes were everywhere it was it was bad <laughs> so i'm glad it's right. not like that anymore no it's uh it's finally you know that part is basically died off for the most part. I don't think we're even seeing 10% of the mosquitoes that we did uh, in the spring. And the ticks were really bad this spring. Yeah. That's for sure. Are you seeing any ticks right now? No, but I know, you know, whenever we have a a bad tick season in the spring, it will be bad. In the fall. Typically in the fall. So, I mean, a lot of people need to be prepared to make sure their dog has everything on board so to speak of what they utilize for tick protection yeah for dog and people nowadays there's too many other things that are now happening with ticks that involve that take on a factor to affect us as well mm-hmm. yeah okay so continuing on the mosquito thread this is it's not exactly where i was planning to go but but now that is this we're... supposed to be the buzzword <laughs> yeah good one good one yeah. <laughs> you're jogging my memory now i i would love to to know how you were thinking about, you know, we, we obviously had the, had the West Nile virus stuff going on a few years ago. And I feel like that has sort of died down a little bit, whether that has anything to do with what's happening in the real world or just because we've kind of, we made a big uh, thing about it. And now we've, it's sort of old news, uh, if that makes sense. But when there was all those mosquitoes earlier this spring, I couldn't help but but just right. at least point out the observation that hmm, this will be interesting if we get out in the woods this fall and find something unexpected. Uh, this is a pretty significant data point. Yeah, um, it's it's definitely, I think definitely feasible. I hate to say it, but I did find one dead crow. Did you? Yeah, and you and I both know crows and ravens, and that typically don't get whacked along the road. Uh, they are impressively uh, smart at getting out of the way of vehicles, yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, a lot of times we don't know till later. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, you know, I know the bear hunters are seeing grouse in the woods. Mm-hmm. But I do believe here, and here's what I'm getting at, is I know our drumming here was delayed by almost two weeks. Because it then correlated when the hawks came back. So the drumming, typically they can drum the latter part of April. And then the hawks come back the first part of May. Instead, because of the multiple storms, we kept having snowstorms. Mm-hmm. So you have the you have the delay in the, in the hatch. But you also have the delay. You start out with the delay in the breeding. You have the delay 
And all that, and that two weeks is critical because that two weeks, they don't have pressure from hawks. Now they have the pressure from hawks. So think about it. This, that two-week delay doesn't all of a sudden get made up. That means the hicks, chicks were delayed two weeks in hatching. Yeah. So are we going to see the results, if there is results this year, delayed another two weeks of when we would start to see it affect uh, the population of the of the uh, grouse? For this year, hmm. so that's that's the only thing I can say. Other than I uh, picked up here, I looked up what you were talking about in, in Wisconsin. Typically, you know, the years that it was bad, they had uh, they had basically a map, and you would look at the map, and it would say, um, you know, they have a, no activity or animal mosquito. They don't have hardly anything on the map, but they had their first West Nile human case. Uh, here this year oh. just just hit the news in Dane County so uh, prior to that there'd only been three cases in uh, Wisconsin and then Minnesota's confirmed cases in horses this year but no human cases hmm. okay yeah that's interesting I forgot you could you could they have a monitor on that obviously but mm-hmm. the, yep. and, and again I I don't really know beyond I don't Beyond knowing mosquitoes are a, a transmitter of it, I don't really know what conditions are standing water. S- standing water for mosquitoes, but are there certain conditions that that make make West Nile virus more uh, more of a risk or more transmittable, or is it just simply number of mosquitoes, number of vectors, basically? Well, this was an article I read, and this is, and I can't in my mind, go back to where sure. where I found the article, but I think it was more down by Louisiana. Um, and it, it said something about basically, we all think about it being wet conditions. And I'm sort of paraphrasing mm-hmm. what I know. Um, it, but when you think about it, you get the water and then if you got a lot of standing water, the hotter it gets, the quicker it starts reproducing the mosquitoes that are, you know, going to that water, you know, to lay their eggs and stuff like they that. Do, they do better in warmer water. Warm water. Oh, okay. And so we, at least here, had a tremendous amount of standing water here. Um, I don't know what it was like farther south, but uh, that last storm and when we had everything melt within like uh, five, five, six days, yep. it took ninety percent of the snow cover. Well, what happens then is is that the runoff was incredible, mm-hmm. uh, and we had culverts going out. We had bridges getting it, you know, affected, and and you know, it was and it was a month before they got everything put back in place. So my point is, is that there was a lot of standing water, but even the woods, I went back the end of June and there was places that still had a lot of standing water. So you just can create, created a much larger area for breeding population for mosquitoes. And, uh, so, but to remember, go back, everything was delayed two weeks, at least in my area, because of the way we kept continually having snow. You know, grouse is basically a sitting duck. Quite the contrast with snow. You know, so it's uh, it stands out really well. So these birds don't move much until most of that snow is gone. I mean, they'll move and start doing the breeding stuff 
but you're going to have about 90% of the snow gone when they do. Yeah. Yeah. It was, a, it was an interesting spring again, the, the way the, the snow piled up in March and then it was cold and then all of a sudden it just snapped and we had a, we had a run of 70 degree days. And I remember, you, you know, even knowing that it's warm, the days are getting longer. You, you know, you're expecting, you're waiting for spring, but it seemed like we had so much snow. I was thinking, oh gosh, we're, we're, we're you know, we'll melt some, but it's not even going to be that much. But I remember being quite surprised at just how quickly it did melt. And, and then, like you said, yeah, we had a, we had a lot of, a lot of water runoff and, um, yeah, it was interesting, but as you pointed out, bear, you know, the, we're we're months down the road now, and I've continued. To, I've been out in real good bird cover a lot myself, uh, but mm-hmm. I've 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 heard um, positive reports. The Minnesota drumming cones were up, indicating pretty decent winter survival. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, there's I th- I would say there's a fair bit of optimism out there, and we're uh, we're we're about to go find out. Yep, that's all you can do. I mean, you you got what you dealt, so just make the best of it. Yeah. Good or bad, we're all going to be going anyways. Yes, yes. Everybody listening to this podcast better be. <laughs> <laughs> we have no no fair weather fans on the, listening to this show. We're all bird hunters. Correct. <laughs> well, we're going to jump into the questions. I have to share a I have to share a little little anecdote um, before we do, but it's it's related to this episode. So I um, we have. We have neighbors, newer neighbors, as of the last couple of years, and uh, it's a younger couple. And the guy Ethan is—he's getting into to grouse hunting, and so I talked to him a little bit. And I I recall not long after he moved in, I I there was a car parked in front of his um, house that had a an English setter, and it was like a field bred English setter sticker on the back. So naturally, that caught my eye. It's, it's no coincidence to have that kind of a sticker on on your car. Well. A couple months went by. I think I just hadn't had a chance to talk to him, and and eventually I talked to him and found out that the the person whose car was parked there uh, is a friend of his, and he figured out that that he listens to my podcast, and so we tied this all together, and and just this funny little small world thing where a friend of my neighbor's listens to the show, and uh, his name is Zach. Well, anyways, yesterday I was back. I had just dropped my son off from school, backed into my driveway. And Zach and Ethan were walking down the road and they were, they take some trips to the boundary waters. They were just going to head up to the boundary waters. And so I saw him and talked to him and Zach doesn't live around here, but we chatted for a while. And, and as we were kind of parting ways, I was going to get, go to work and they were, they were going to get ready for their trip. Zach asked if we would be doing the Ann Jandernaw episode again. I said, "Well, in fact, Zach, I will be talking to Ann tomorrow morning. So if you've got if you've got questions, you've got a direct line. Let me know right now." And he kind of, as he was walking away, he just said, "I don't have any questions. I just want to say it's my favorite episode. I look forward to it every year." And I heard that a lot oh, that's yesterday. Nice. Ann. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm glad it's helping. Yes, yes, people um, people love it. People look forward to it, and. Once again, we we always appreciate you taking the time to join us. So, oh, I appreciate you having me on. Well, are you are you ready, Ann? <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna start with your favorite question. I kind of organized these a little bit with dogs, habitat, and then some miscellaneous stuff. So we're gonna start with dogs. There's a few dog questions, and and Kurt wrote in. He said, "Ann, queen of the grouse, how do you train your dogs to point running roughed grouse?" and not bump them by getting too close. Now, that is a million-dollar question if I've ever heard one, Ann. Um, okay, I'll try not to make this long. 
You don't have to. <laughs> we can make it long. Okay. I know. And that I may have to crack open another Mountain Dew before it's <laughs> over. <laughs> uh, okay. That's what I train for. Yeah. I train specifically for running grouse. Um, because really, when you think about it, any time that you train for the worst case, everything else is easy yes. after that. So you create train for the worst case scenario, and then you go make it easy for yourself and for the dog. So you're not throwing a curve at the dog, you know, right in the beginning of the season. Okay, go hunt this bird that runs. Oh, the dog's like putting his paw up and saying, hey, all my birds were sitting. <laughs> you're not moving. <laughs> now what? And then the dog is totally frustrated. And, of course, that trickles down to the hunter. So long story short, how do I train? It starts beginning with the pups and how I introduce the birds in the scent. Now, the first time I do do with a puppy, you know, we're talking seven weeks old, it gets the scent. I, I take a quail and I basically, bird sense, bird scent to me. My job is to turn this nose on, not the eyes on, but turn the nose because that's, that's their strongest asset mm. is that nose. And everyone has, and I'll say this up front, everyone has their own idea of how to train birds. And there's a thousand different ways. You need to pick through all these different applications, find what fits for you, because no one of us is just perfect that it's going to fit for everyone. So we all, we each have our own situations, our own style of dogs, everything. But what I did is I introduced the pup to the bird with young pups, I basically, I would dispatch the bird because I don't want it fluttering in the face of a young puppy. And I'd start plucking feathers. And it sounds silly, but the puppy, you know, when you first take a puppy and you put it in grass, it's like their eyes get big. And you've probably seen it. And they're, you know, it's like, what is this? This is so cool. Yeah. You know, and it's a whole new world that you just took from carrying that puppy out to where you want it and you put it in the grass and it's like you know and then so as it's looking around at that point that pup you're making it's called imprinting you do it with horses but you can do it with any animal and you're imprinting that experience so one of the things i want to put with that experience is scent scent and that scent basically is that pup's taking its steps and it's looking around and it's getting its feel of grass and a little bit of rock under its feet. I start dropping this fresh quail scent mm. down. And I do have gloves on when I'm doing it. So are um, you dropping feathers? Is that what you're dropping? Yeah, okay. I'm dropping feathers. Okay. I need to have a whole pillow full of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But basically, I'm, I'm, it sounds crazy, but I'm plucking the stupid bird. <laughs> <laughs> and let these feathers but see what i wanted i want it to be as natural it's not like i want to say here's a pile in front of you go scent it no i want it to turn and maybe see just a little bit of that feather drifting down and then it sticks its nose in and then it backs up a little bit and its eyes get big and it's like Ooh, i like that yeah yeah that's what oh and then and then you start hearing the snort snort snort, snort, mm -hmm. snort. and you know you're starting to you are now giving focus to the purpose of that pup, of where it's going to go on its long journey and becoming a sled, I don't know, a sled dog, but a bird dog. <laughs> 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 ah, 
So you're all passionate about this, but it was no different than with sled dogs. Right. It was always teaching the dogs to pull. And it was like, now I know what to do. And it's the same thing with bird dogs. You have to find their passion. No different with people. Yeah. Uh, so there, there's, so the, the pup is, you know, it's, it's starting. Next thing you know, instead of looking around, it's got his nose and it's trying to find the next feather and the next feather. And then what I do is I take the quail and I will grab the feet and I don't want wet ground when I do this because you're going to suppress the scent of that quail. You want it dry ground and you want the bird dry. And then basically I, with the, with the puppy, you can, you know how you kneel down and the puppy's maybe by your one knee and then out in front, you can, I can drag that, that bird across the ground and make it wiggle and all this other stuff. And then the puppy will just charge nine times out of the 10, you know, maybe you have to do it twice, like zip, zip, you know, mm -hmm. just enough to make it jump a little bit like a toy. And, uh, and then I'll have right next to me to the left, I'll have this opening because I make openings for my little pups to go into the woods because otherwise they're going to, they, they just see a wall otherwise. Yep. They need to see a tunnel. You're building their just, confidence with a little assistance. Yep. Yep, and I'm giving direction. I'm funneling the whole situation how I'd like to have it happen. And I just, I get that puppy going, starting to follow, and it's like, oh, give me that. I smell it. I smell it. You know, it's like that. And, I, and then I toss it two feet, maybe three feet in, and that pup stops for a second, like, oh, Woods, what, what is this? No, scent. I'm going to go get it. <laughs> and I've had seven, seven-week-old puppies bring little, trying to drag quail back Jeez. to me. And, and so that's how I start the initial part. And I'm not going to go and keep doing this, folks. You stop. You had a success. It's done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I pick the puppy up and I take it back. So the next time we go out, I put the puppy down in the same area. And they remember. They'll remember that experience in that area. It's amazing how smart they are. And then after that, then the next deal is, is that you pick another area, maybe on the opposite side. You have the same, you know, a few, few paces up and you do the same thing. So now what happens when that pup comes in, they're looking for the scent. They're tracking. The scent is the reward. There will not always be a bird for that dog every time it has scent in its life. Mm. So when you think about it, the proportion, the percentage of scent that a dog has and the percentage of scent and bird flushing, and then you got scent, bird flushing, and shot, and then you have the next the scent, bird flushing, shot, and the bird actually goes down. Which one has the higher percentage? So for me, it's like practicing a layup over and over. And I've found, at least for me, I have quail. Now, yes, I could take them on grouse, but there's no reason for me to be educating and messing with broods early in the season. But with quail, what I do is I let them in loose in the thick understory. They don't want to fly up. They want to run, stop, run, stop, run, stop, mm. which is in, like mirroring what I see grouse do. Yeah. So these pups then are learning, and you don't do it every day. I don't do... do this, you know, like five days a week introducing these pups to scent. I want that scent to be special. I don't want it to get to the point where 
I want you know I want to be special, but I also you got to remember you're also teaching these dogs and puppies patience, and they get sent. The scent goes away. They're used to that now. I get sent. I find the scent. Okay, now I got to cast out, and I have ten week old puppies that are starting to cast out hmm. farther and farther, and then come back in. That's just genetics taking over. You're allowing the genetics to take over. Um, I'm not into, at that time, styling them up or making them point and all that. You know, they've got that in them. What they don't have the opportunity is to learn to work scent and then let the genetics take over and then then cast around and come back in, cast around, come back in, and fine-tune. You're fine-tuning their noses. You're fine-tuning their noses so that they're differentiating between a lot of scent or less scent. And so that's that's one of the things that I do is I start there with the scent. I don't do it every day. I don't, in time, the scent's farther away. Yeah. Over and over, it becomes farther and farther away. But if you go in and you go and you put the scent at the same distance every time, in three times, that pup will think that everything will be that distance. And I'd rather teach them to pick up less scent and work into it than to basically have the scent at a certain distance or a certain pattern or certain wind and all that. I mean, you're not going to go into a grouse woods and have be worrying about wind. At least I don't. We've got the dogs got to figure it out mm-hmm. uh, because we don't have that luxury to be able to in ninety eight percent of the grouse woods be able to always put the wind where we want it, want it uh, like you do a field. And so, you know, my specialty is more woods than it is any you know, than you know prairies and things like that. But I guess that I hope I'm answering the question and not going on a long tangent. <laughs> No, I, I, I think, I think it was a, it was a good answer and interesting. I don't know that we'd ever had a question quite like that. I mean, again, it's, it's one of these things that we all want to, most people that hunt rough girls with pointing dogs, they, we all want to know the, you know, what is, how do we help our dogs point, relocate and stay with uh, running grouse. I, I thought it was interesting, you know, using the fe- feathers rather than, like you say, put it, maybe putting a dead bird or a live bird at 10 yards every time where dog goes in and gets a big, big nose full of scent and gets the bird every time. You can kind of vary the... you got to mix it up. Yeah. Otherwise, you're creating a, a real disaster. If you don't mix it up, because... Grouse hunting, there's. I've always said grouse hunting is like playing chess in the woods. Yeah. It's always moving. There's many moving pieces. But one of the things is the guy asked here, Kurt did, about not bumping them by getting too close. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the too close issues come up when the when the scent is always kept too close in training. And then also the dogs get to the point that they think that there's always a scent and bird connected every single time. And for me, my philosophy is, you know, is that, and I go by this, is that a lot of people say birds, 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 birds. Well, you and I both know we don't have the numbers we used to have where we could just keep rattling off birds, birds, birds. And, and those grouse are running more than they used to. So you have to change up how you're training. And those dogs are happy with scent. 
they're very happy finding scent. And if you have a bird at the end, it's the icing on the cake. But I would rather set the expectation with the dog that its purpose is to find me the scent and then we'll work it together. And if everything comes together, great. But to not bump the bird, I basically also teach my young dogs to leave it, to walk away from it. And what I'm doing is, is that I'm developing an on-off switch. And that teaches patience. It teaches that this scent's going to go away. Or you put a bird out there and, and take it away. And then bring the pup back in. So that it's, it's scent that's fading. And you can set up different levels of scent in different areas so that it finds it. So it's working now heavy scent, less scent, just a trace of scent. And sometimes it will go back. And what it's going to start doing is start casting those different areas that you've been to check. Okay, is it here? Is it here? Is it here? And then you move your location of where you've been training each time. So now, now it goes and starts checking here, here, and here. And then it learns that the scent will also be taken away from it. And I think that's where you start to develop patience with a dog. Hmm. Because a dog that has scent at a certain distance over and over again, birds over and over and over and over again, and it doesn't understand why the scent's fading from it. It doesn't understand why is it, well, it's always been here, right here, and there's always been a bird going up. Where, where is it? And then next time it gets gets the scent, you know, in that hunt, and then it's like, well, the scent disappeared again. What? I wasn't trained for this. So there you are. That's how I teach. I take the scent away. I vary the scent level. I vary the scent distance. I vary how often they get sent. I vary how often they have birds. And I vary that times they go out there, they don't find anything. Yeah. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So I think I got, I got that. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, we could do an entire episode 
title with the title of Kurt's question, really, because again, it's oh, yeah. something that that everybody yeah. wants to know. I I want to I want to ask one or two more clarifying questions, then we'll, we'll sure. we won't spend uh, twenty minutes on every question. But this this is a big one. Do your dogs do they self relocate on moving grouse? So if they they establish point and you're making your way over there and the grouse moves, that scent fades as you described. Will your dogs move and stay with the bird? Yes. Okay. I love it. I love a cat crawling dog. <laughs> I do. I, I love do too. a panther in the woods. <laughs> and and I, you know, this is something I don't say too often, but if you want to see me well up in tears, it's to see a young pup put it together. And all of a sudden, the crouch goes low and the slinking. I mean, customers have seen me <laughs> just with tears in my eyes <laughs> because I, it's for me, it's addictive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to see, Everything that you've dreamt that this pup could be, or you do a breeding, and you start seeing these pups do what they want to do, you know what they've been born to do, and the genetics, and you you give the opportunity for all this to come through. It is so cool because I love it when these dogs relocate, and you know you'll see them when they're young. Uh, you have to learn sometimes not to interject yourself. And not and to realize, whatever type of dog you have, there's going to be different styles. My style happens to come all from Europe, and you know I'm sitting here with all dogs in here, and there's ten setters in here and three puppies that connect coming in here, and they all slink, and I love it. I am just such a fan of seeing those dogs work scent. And they learned not to push because why? I didn't structure the scent into a certain narrow parameter. Mm-hmm. I honestly believe that's it because I've seen a lot of dogs that have come from extreme structured training and then not being used to the scent being taken away. But yes, my dogs relocate. But I, in the training of these dogs, you need to put in cues so to speak, that you use with a dog. Um, one of them is to, you need like a slow and speed and slow and go without saying anything. So like, shh, let's stop. Right. And then to go forward like a horse. And you don't come up right along the side of these dogs. You need to swing out a little bit. And then you get to about at a 45. And you'll watch these dogs and they'll basically, they'll have... They'll have that strong scent, and especially the older ones. They'll go and they'll they're on point. They're crouched low, and then you'll see a little eye cast to you, and a little bit of movement of the eye, and you know the scent's fading, and the bird's running. And basically, that's mm-hmm. most people. When that dog starts to move, most people say, "Whoa, Mm-mm, I'm not going to. I don't have the ability to smell the bird. The dog does." let the dog cast out and around and many times they will block. And I remember the first time Kenzie did that for me, he cast it out and around and the bird went right up over the top of my head. Yep. I did have a gun and I didn't do anything. <laughs> I just watched it. I just watched it. I thought that is so cool. And I remember getting a hold of the gentleman and I said, these dogs, I mean, this is back like 12, 12, 13 years ago. I said, this dog went out and came around. He goes, oh, that's called ringing the bird. 
There's an actual term for it. And so, yeah, they do relocate, but I want them to relocate with my speed. This is for me. And I want to be a part of seeing this unfold. Uh, and I love watching them work the birds because you'll learn a lot about the birds by just yes. watching how the dog is working that bird. Yep. There's a really good instructions there. So yep. yeah, you got your passionate answer. I for that love one. it. I love it. And, and I, 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 again, every, everybody's heard me say this, but I, I have, that's the style of hunting that I have come to appreciate. It's the way I like my dogs to work. My younger setter does it. Um, more so than my, my older one. Um, and I think that's a, a reflection of me, you know, learning stuff over the years and I won't take any of the credit for it. I, I, I had to, Jerry Coulter really, really helped me understand how to get out of the way of the dogs and allow, yep. allow them to interact with the birds and, and really just sit back and enjoy the show. Like you're saying, Ann. and I, I mean, that is so when I figured that out or, or got a better understanding of that it was such a relief because i don't need to be saying whoa and getting involved like an imbecile like i i don't have the nose you know the dog has a nose <laughs> just sit back and enjoy the show and i mean this that sounds great you know in, in theory and on paper and we all have our moments but um that's generally what what i love it's hard to do yeah it is it it's is. hard to switch from u.s style training <laughs> yeah. to this i found it very hard and i had a friend here that was here at at dog camp from France and we were running dogs and I remember I got two nice pups and it had been one of those horrible years where it was too warm for training and I had all these client pups because I basically sell a lot of started pups that are six seven months old and I get the foundation on them and and I talked to him and I said you know I haven't had time to put into those two new pups that came came over he says, no, that's okay. Let's just take them out. Well, it was the biggest disaster. I was mortified. I was embarrassed. And they're all over the place. <laughs> and and they, they ran around, looked at the Johnny house, banged on it the first time. And I'm like, this isn't good. <laughs> and, and I thought, they, you know, they helped me to get something so special. And I didn't wasn't able, because of my requirement to the clients, to put the time into my own dogs. And I was embarrassed, mortified. And we got done after this wild goose chase, literally, totally uncontrolled. Everything's all over. I mean, talk about no ducks were in a row on this one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I was mortified, really mortified. And he goes, oh, don't worry. We do it again tomorrow. I'm like, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. And, and he grinned. And I'm like, he says, it'll be different tomorrow. Don't worry. <laughs> Bullshit. It's going to be terrible. So, we, as always, we got through the rest of the day and all this other stuff and enjoyed our day. And I thought, oh, well, here's tomorrow. <laughs> and we took the dogs out. Now, these pups were like seven months old by then. Very little training. And I saw a different dog. I mean, I was like, mm. they were more controlled, and all of a sudden they started stopping on scent. That's genetics. That's not something I did. It's genetics. Yeah. And the takeaway from this was that genetics is in dogs. It's in there to learn. 
And uh, the smart ones learn right away that they can't chase, that they can't, you know, bring the bird back. And part of that is getting you, you actually are creating a frustration for those pups by always doing it the same all the time. And if you give them variations, then they learn to work with different variables instead of being so structured. But the takeaway that came out of came from this gentleman from France was he says, I mean no respect no disrespect. I said, Well what's wrong? And he says, You Americans, you talk too much to your dogs. <laughs> yeah, ain't dogs that have nose. Dogs have nose. You don't. Let the dog be a dog. <laughs> it's perfect. It's it's it so simple, Anne, right? <laughs> yeah, it was so simple. He says and everyone has their own style so this is a style i've adapted i'm not putting this down anyone's throat or anything like that because you have to deal with it you want to but i'll deal with this you go do what you want (laughs) yeah perfect perfectly well said (laughs) all right we're moving on. I, I wanted to ask one more, but we're gonna we're gonna move on to question two. Go for it. You said we had <laughs> well, a couple yeah, hours. Yeah, we, we do. All right. So okay. So I'm gonna ask Kurt's question a little bit differently, just to see if we can squeeze a little more juice juice out of the yard. <laughs> <laughs> so let's fast forward. We talked a lot about puppies. I think we hit on some really good stuff there. Fast forward. Uh, let's say we got a year and a half old dog, second season or third. Doesn't really matter. We've got a dog that we feel is getting too close to birds with consistency and bumping them. What are you going to do, if anything, to try to address that? I would have, by, before then, implemented in a in training where I take it. You see the dogs on birds. And also, I want to say that I think, if it's getting too close to birds, you may need to set your distance a little closer so you can handle the situation. You see what it's doing and you know what it's doing. If you're just, excuse me, if you're just letting it free run and be out of ways, you can't control the situation. You cannot turn the situation on and off. Mm. And so what I would suggest is the ones that are bumping birds have not learned to respect the birds. And what I would do is I'd take the bird work Prior to the hunting season, I would take the birds out of there, and it finds scent. And then you make it find the scent, woes on scent, and then you go and you plant another scent area a little ways away. So now it's going to cast again for something a little bit more stronger in scent. And I would do scent drags and things like that and take the bird, because the bird is also becoming part of its... um, it's expecting now to have a bird flush every time. Right. So take the bird out of it and just teach it back to finding the scent and to behaving around scent. And that you then can go out and walk around that dog if you want to. And one of the things that I did with my dogs when I had mostly U.S. dogs, I had a couple of dogs that were like just what you're talking about. You know, they... it. It doesn't take anything in the thick woods to lose visuals of them. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you hear, you know, up goes the bird. Um, is that I would put a harness on a pigeon and I put grouse scent on it 
And then I did a half hitch with the dog to the tree. And then the dog is out maybe 20 feet from the tree. And it sees me in front of it. And I had an old cane pole. And I tied the bird to the end of the cane pole. And then I would, the dog would know that I had the bird there. And I would let that bird walk around in front of it and steady it up. And people do different things in this, and that's what I would do. And then after a while, I'd just go to having pigeons. And that dog, I'd be out in the front at about a 45, you know, just enough to have a little bit of angle off of the dog. And I would throw pigeons across the front of it and expect it to stand there. And we would do it. And don't always do it on one side. Move it around. And then I had a couple stupid pigeons that went and decided it wanted to land in front of the dog. But by then, that dog knew it wasn't. But it, but you got to understand, if you have a problem, and maybe let's say from the end of last year, and you're starting to see it now, this dog, you know, it's it's been six to eight months with it. And it could take a year to unravel that. It's not going to happen over, overnight because it takes more to undo a problem than it is to create something successful. So I would think you got to very, you know, get it so that its focus is more on the scent than it is on the birds. And I think you have to very, and if you really need to, you need to put control, more control on the dog and keep it from being able to uh, go after the bird. Yeah. Um, There might be a vibrate, a light nick in there. Um, You know, I just, I have, I don't use much of that anymore, but because I found that if I vary my scent, and I teach different expectations for the dogs. You know, when I'm thinking about it, you know, you would too, is that what is this dog going to encounter in the grouse woods? And how are these birds going to act? If you think about what that bird is leaving for scent, you got to train like that. You're not training. I mean, woodcock are easy because the scent's always in a s- smaller area. Yeah, right there, generally. And that. And if that's all you're training on small areas, these birds don't, and these dogs don't understand how to relocate. Mm-hmm. And then they get frustrated. And typically the frustration is when you start to see dogs bumping birds. Sure. They're frustrated. They'll push. They get too excited. They get like, and when they get frustrated, dogs do get excited. So it's a combination of all of them and then just everything goes off the rails. Yeah. No, no, that that makes sense. And again, a, a dog that's consistently bumping birds is is maybe looking for a little too much sense, looking for that bird in its face. And um, mm-hmm. I think everything you laid out there, you know, kind of taking a step back and working less scent and behaving around less scent. Um, that makes sense. That's that's another. You could also that's I I've had people describe scenario where if you were using pigeons and launchers you put a pigeon in a launcher and mm-hmm. you have a setup where you you can see when the dog gets right. sent and the dog is moving closer well as soon as you see the dog get sent that's when you pop the bird and you're and you work on it work on it that way right and i think wove at that point needs to be very strong in your repertoire that it learns to basically we stop we stop yeah because at that point, this dog has learned that it's in it for itself versus with you doing the hunting with you. Um, and you might want to put a, 
another one is a word I use is settle and then close. Um, so we just words that can give you an off on switch, so to speak, just a little more control on the dog without having to, you know, reach to the e collar because yeah. not every dog's going to deal with the e collar. Yeah, I don't know if everybody does. I do that too. There's just, again, certain sort of your relationship with your dog, certain scenarios take place. I might say easy in a very low, calm yep. voice in that, you know, same thing, just kind of labeling. It's settling. Yeah, and you're labeling a situation that the dog is familiar with and you're kind of, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you're putting a, putting that word on it like we do with every other word. Um, it just, it comes naturally, but it makes sense. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. Excellent. Excellent kickoff there. So next question, has Anne ever had a dog that just didn't want to hunt? Um, I've had long time ago, we're talking before I brought in the European lines, I had a dog that thought his purpose was to go down the trail and stick its nose up in the air and did not want to go in until it smelled something. That drove me nuts. <laughs> I mean, we're not out here to do a parade. I, I've seen, I've seen times where, even with sled dogs, in any genetics or any bloodlines or anything, there's always going to be the potential for a dog not to be as driven as what you would like, or, or something, you know. And it's it's like I remember my first litter of sled dogs. I got everyone to pull in the harness and everyone to run. But Al never liked to run. And Al would put his effort into it at the beginning. And then Al was like, okay, we've done this. I don't think this is the best thing I've ever done. And so Al went to a pet home. Um, but with the bird dogs, for the most part, I've always had dogs that want to hunt. And I just, you know... There's been, but you know, these were some of the, you know, and I'm not, I probably, I'm not going to say what type of dog it was, you know, but it was, I'm not trying to put down dog types, but you could have a field trial dog that doesn't make field trial. You could have, uh, you know, a horseback dog that doesn't make the horseback, but maybe would be better suited for something else. It's no different than people. We all don't succeed at everything. We have certain things that we're better at than whatever you know so i think you need to pick your bloodlines well uh with the understanding that yeah you know you've got a pretty good chance of always getting something consistent and that's the thing with any breeder is that or however you do it is that you need to ask the breeder those questions like this one that's a good question but also you need to ask the breeder can you does the litter mature at about the same rate. Mm. And if he has dogs or she has dogs or they have dogs that, well, yeah, we get part of it, you know, we did, you know, well, and then, you know, there's a couple of them that, you know, are going to take a little bit longer. Then that's, that tells you where the genetics lies in the, in the, uh, in how I would say you want, you need consistency across the board in the breeding. And to me, the consistency needs to say, hey, we're delivering a consistent type of dog. So that's what I'm trying to say. Um, it, it's, it's, 
these are things that I think most people don't think about. They think about, they'll see the parents or they'll see this or that, but how have the litters been consistent? Do they develop consistently, you know, as a whole group, or do you have a bunch of, you know, maybe there's two or three that aren't going to develop pretty quick or whatever. Um, I mean, size doesn't matter with me as much as far as development, but you basically want to see the genetics there. Now, any dog that's going to be bigger, and that they take a while to grow into that lanky frame. Mm. Uh, and But the nose isn't going to change, and the genetics potential isn't going to change of what it's capable of doing. So those are just... What did you even ask, anyways? <laughs> <laughs> this is only the second question, man. Dog on tangents. <laughs> uh, I so has the dog. Has Ann ever had a dog that just didn't want to hunt? I think you, oh, yeah. you, you answered the question, and and yeah, I did. You know, but it's just I look back and I can see the difference in having a strong base for genetics, and sometimes. It's hard to come up with a dog too fast or this group is too slow or this, you know, and that's the thing, you know, it's, I've seen it, but I'm going to tell people to go ask those type of questions yeah. that I just mentioned. So again, focusing on genetics and those are, those are things you can do to ensure that your odds of getting a dog with less drive right. um, is less likely. And so, but one other thing to one other way to look at this, I guess, is, you know, people come about dogs different ways. Sometimes people get a dog and they decide to try to take it hunting. If you have a dog that you think doesn't want to hunt, you, and maybe, maybe you've tried all these things, but that's a, that's a dog that you've got to try to spark that. You've got to try to, to right. create some drive. And there are things you can do to right. spark desire and drive. And so if you, if this person, we don't have any more details, but if this person has a dog that they don't think wants to hunt, I would be looking into and trying to figure out any possible ways I could carefully and in a measured way spark drive and desire. Yeah, I totally agree. It, and you got to give it an opportunity. Yeah. But I think you also, it wouldn't hurt at that time to set up some time with a trainer that you like and you trust and that and say, okay, how do I do this? Mm -hmm. Yes. So that you know that, but also... With a dog like that, you're going to have to think about consistency, structure, and you know get that spark and drive going really, really good before you ever break. Try to do the gun breaking. You know you're going to have to. I mean, they're not. I mean, I've seen some take a little bit of time, but I've also seen others that just they just go do it. You know, and so that's that's what I would say is that you need it is. You can do a lot yourself. You can read a lot yourself. And at times you get done and said, My, I got more information than I need. And But sometimes it never hurts to just say, hey, I'd like to set up two hours with a trainer. And can you help me? Yeah. And there's people out there that do that. And they can tell you, you know. you know, And you need a trainer that's pretty open-minded. And that, that's their type of thing. You know, well, I only do field trial or whatever. You know, well, they're at, they're at one extreme. Um, so, and, or you got someone that only does something else. I mean, there's a lot of really good field trailers, just like the gentleman you mentioned that are there 
that can help people too. You know, so it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah, uh, you just you have to find a trainer that's diversified a little bit. Yep, and I and I think you when you said you've got to give the dog an opportunity, that's a great point because this is a this is a relatively common question I hear it, and I probably went through it a little bit myself from first time bird dog owners. And again, I don't know, I don't have any other details on the person that asked this question, but. You've got to give the dog an opportunity. If you get a hunting dog, like I probably did, brought it out and, you know, saw it around its first, you know, I'll get asked, somebody asked me the other day, I, I had my dog around five spruce grouse and she didn't acknowledge, she didn't point, she didn't make it, it didn't look like she really knew what was going on. That's totally normal for a young dog without much experience. It's, you need to give them an opportunity. So if, if anybody asking has a dog that doesn't appear like it likes to hunt, but it hasn't had that much opportunity. Um, it doesn't happen right. automatically is what I'm getting at. No, not always. It doesn't, uh, you know, in the, as the dog gets older, it's going to take a little more nudging yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next one. And this is, this is rounding out our dog specific questions, but the next question is I've got two American Brits. One is a two year old, pretty inexperienced on grouse. The other is a nine month old who hasn't been on wild birds yet. What kind of cover should I be looking for, especially in the early season to help them out? I like this question. Two year old, pretty inexperienced. You got a nine month old who hasn't been on wild birds yet. Um, I don't would not hunt them together. That's the first thing I'd mm-hmm. say. Um, the other part is is eight to ten. I think yes, that that work or ten, eleven, twelve will also work. Oh uh, yeah. There, so just to clarify there, because I didn't read that part of the this the que- the person that asked a question kind of shared what he was thinking, and he said I was leaning towards old growth bordering some eight to 10 year old cuts, but I'm not sure. So ultimately he's asking what kind of cover should he take his young inexperienced dogs in to perhaps set them up for success over a different kind of right now, prior to the situation here, you start them in, okay, let's just say getting abused to run in the woods. Cause I'm just taking yeah. this as I probably am not in grouse country and I'm coming North. Um, this is the way I look at this, and I could be totally wrong, but anyways, I'm going to treat it as if it's someone farther south that is going to be coming north to go grouse hunting. And you can always get a woodlot. And you know as well as I do, when you start going down an elevation in a woodlot, it gets thicker. Mm-hmm. So you start them out in the, the you know the older mature trees areas, and I even do that with my pups. I mean, I have trails moved all through Aspen, and then I have trails that go through... Uh, like a mixed hardwoods, and then I have hazel brush stands that I can skirt in, skirt out of. Mm-hmm. And so you start them, letting them get their feet, get their consistency running, and set your range. Set your range so that if the young dog, or both of those dogs go on point, you can be there. You can see what's happening. So yes, I'm telling you to keep them in about half to three-quarter gun range. Yes, I am. Because you can't fix things when you can't see them and you can't get to them. You cannot interject yourself into the situation. All you're going to do is interject it remotely if you do anything. And that's not always the best idea, you know, with a with an e-collar. Yeah. But when they prove themselves and they prove that they can handle it, 
and that they're handling the birds property properly. And I would wait to do this on the second year, midway through the second year. First year, if they hunt close for you, you can control the situation because you're still a coach right now. And so you're going to look at this and you're going to see these dogs working one at a time, hopefully. Um, and you're going to work the cover. You're going to turn them and all that. So you're practicing and you, maybe you lay some scent out there so that they are starting to stop on scent. And you put it in different places and you don't put it in the same area all the time. And then gradually you start to bring them into that transition from, you know, the mature hardwoods to the not so mature hardwoods. Or maybe you find an area that's got a second growth coming up that they thinned the hardwoods maybe 15 years ago. And now you've got another stem density coming up underneath it in areas. So you're starting to tighten up the view in the hardwoods, the stem density. And you get down to the edge where maybe there's, you know, uh, some pines or some thick you know, vines and all this other type of stuff. And they start to learn to go through that as well. And you start then shifting the focus from more open to a little more woods to less woods, less woods, now thick. And you start putting scent out there for them. Um, it never hurts to go and put a bird, not a bird, but uh, scent and hang it in a tree and let the wind uh, cast it out. And then see where that dog's picking up that scent. And then you can practice on the behavior of the dog working into the scent. And, and you know, you have a way of working and knowing that if I bring the dog around here, more than likely you can see when it hits the scent, how it's going to react to the scent. And basically you start to develop cautiousness. But don't take it all the way in right under it and let it go nuts. Pull it off at a reasonable distance of what you think the grouse would be if you wanted to take a shot. You know, so back it off and say, okay, you know, we're, we're going to, okay, let it go. Boom, you're off on to the next way. And the dog learns to stay calm. Okay, we did this. We're going to go do something else now. And we're going to look at another place. And so you learn to walk away from it. That is giving you an on-off switch for the situation so it doesn't, when it, say, you had a grouse on the log instead, and the bird, dog saw it. At that age, most of them don't want to stay with you. It's like, oh my word, there's lunch. It's <laughs> going to make, it's going to move. I'm going to go get it. <laughs> so if you don't have a mechanism in place or a command to say, hey, leave it, take a minute. It could be a porcupine for all that matters. I mean, these are things, these control commands that you can put in leave it close easy shush <laughs> click yeah. whatever <laughs> i mean they're your throttles it's like having an accelerator you know it's uh it's it's the throttle for you so i think that's you know i that's what i would do is i if i don't have aspen I'd start with a hardwoods. Then I'd go to a hardwoods that's had some thinning done 15, 20 years ago. Then I'd start working down closer to where it's gnarly and brushy. And of course there's going to be, if you're farther south, some big raspberry bushes. Um, and that's what it, you're changing the density, but you're keeping the dog close and you're creating opportunities. And it's also going to learn where it is, but the eight to 10 year old, uh, you know, I would even go up to 11 or 12. The eight could be too young. In some places, I don't know where the person's hunting. Right. Um, 
Eight-year-old Aspen in Michigan is usually pretty clean, whereas eight-year-old Aspen in Wisconsin on county forest land isn't clean. It's it's a stick-in-the-chest thing sometimes, and it's horrible to get through. And in different counties are different, you know, but for the most part, you're going to be looking at about 9 to 12 right in there. Uh, and you got to remember, those birds are coming out of the brood range. And the brood range typically is, you know, basically next to some hardwoods, next to lowland areas. And lowland areas are more your key. I'd get the dogs acclimated from working in the woods and get them acclimated to working in thicker cover. But then also realize that most of the time when you guys go out in it's early season, you're going to go low. You're not going to go high. Because those birds only have a small time to eat, so they're going to be down not too far from where they spent the night. Mm. Whenever I was guiding, I, you know, the guy said, "Well, where are we going to go?" I said, "I got to find what level the birds are on." Yeah. And it sounded sort of silly because I'd get some looks at me like, <laughs> "Well, I mean, they do move around, you know, and I want to see where the dog's going to hit scent, and being able to recognize where that dog when the dog is hitting scent is fantastic, but." You know, and I'm just saying is in time when the dog proves that it can control itself, it's going to do what you want. Then you give it more freedom. But it's like the child that gets on the bike the first time. You don't let it go to every end of town. Who knows where it's going to end up? Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, you got two blocks. That's it. Then get back with the bike. Uh, Wait, are we talking about my five-year-old now or are we still talking about grouse dogs, Ann? That your five-year-old's already doing that? <laughs> he's not riding two blocks away from the house on his own. I can assure you that. Oh my word! He's riding his. Bike. He's already riding at five years old. I mean, I didn't have children. I've just got dogs. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. The I think what you're saying is in line with what this person was thinking. And just to kind of tie a bow on this, if we if we assume <laughs> what type of bow. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what I'm trying. I'm trying to box this up. <laughs> if you're we, trying to wrap it up, is what you're trying yeah, to yeah, not quite. We got too many too many more questions to go through. But oh my word, this is fun. But this person was was what you're saying, and what the question the the question asker was a- asking is: if we assume that the birds are in, in this thickest nastiest cover, we don't necessarily have to take our dogs right there to get more bird contacts it's we can think about it in this progressive nature where we might we might skirt the edge of something and and start Mm -hmm. in some more open cover and again we're building up the dog's confidence these these younger inexperienced dogs we're building up their confidence we're not just throwing them into the fire essentially well in one quick thing here that they need to realize a young dog it's better for those young ones that have not had much bird exposure not to run into a cubby the first time Mm -hmm. It's overload. It's sensory overload. You know, think about it, really. I mean, they're going to work probably great on the first point, but you know how these birds will stagger getting up. Yeah, it's just it's going to be chaos. It'll be total chaos. So you may have to, if you think there's more birds there, you may have to let the dog do a great point and everything and leave it before the whole thing unravels yeah. on you. I mean, it definitely builds drive, but maybe not the type of drive you want. Right, right, yep. Excellent. 
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.